2: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed the History of Fashion
1: podcast where we explore the who what when of why we wear we are fashion historians and your hosts, april callahan and cassidy zachary tis the season dress listeners and by that we mean it's time for our annual hiatus where cass and i take some time off from making brand new episodes to relax and spend some time with family and friends
2: But in the meantime, please join us as we retrace our own fashion history footsteps with a selection of our favorite past episodes. Happy holidays to all who celebrate, and we can't wait to catch you all super soon for Season 7 of Dressed, launching end of January 2024. Please enjoy this episode from the Dressed wardrobe of over 450 past shows. Well, today's topic, I am a bit embarrassed to say, has been on my list of potential fashion history mysteries for a year and a half. (laughs) <laughs> Listener Whitney wrote to us in April of 2019 to ask, how did the transition from horses to cars affect fashion? I think it's pretty difficult to drive in a bustle, and we're driving gloves as common as the movies imply. And, you know, that is such a great question, and one that necessitated a deep dive, or should I say deep drive, into the <laughs> annals of history. <laughs> April, I think you and I were both very happy to discover that car driving has always been a woman's business. Literally.
1: Yep, because today's inquiry takes us all the way back to 1885, and that was the year that German inventor Carl Benz built his Benz patent motor wagon, and he patented it one year later. And Benz is really regarded as the father of the modern car because his Benz motor wagon was not only propelled by an internal combustion engine, but it is also considered the world's first production automobile. In other words, it was the first car that was really put into
2: mass production and the public could buy it. And we want to emphasize the term modern here because steam-powered vehicles actually date to the 17th century. Alas, while that is certainly a super fascinating history, today's FHM specifically concerns the period when, thanks to technological developments, motorized vehicles really began to enter the mainstream as viable substitutions for what had been for centuries horse-drawn carriages. And while we've all likely heard of the luxury company Mercedes Benz, a future incarnation of Benz's company, how many of us have heard of Carl Benz, or more importantly, his enterprising wife, Bertha? Bertha Benz, born Sassily Bertha Ringer, was actually the financier behind Carl's business operations. And she
1: played no small role in his business's success. At a time when horse drawn carriages were the only form of small scale mobile transportation along side obviously with walking and riding horseback, it was Bertha Benz, along with two of their teenage sons, who took her husband's motor wagon Model 3 on a 60-plus mile journey from her home in Mannheim, Germany, to visit her mother in the city of Fortsheim. And this was a journey that normally would have taken two-plus days by horse and wagon, and it was achieved in less than one. And this journey was really heralded as the first long-distance journey in an automobile And Bertha apparently took the motor wagon without even telling her husband. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was just really determined to prove to his naysayers just what this new machine could do. And this was 1888, after all. So three years since Benz had first introduced his motor wagon. And let's just say he was not the greatest promoter, Um, you know, the the duo had not yet achieved the excited responses that his innovation really did deserve. And that's where Bertha comes into play.
2: Right. And there's actually a really fun, dramatized video of Bertha's journey on YouTube. It's by Mercedes-Benz. It's called Bertha Benz, The Journey That Changed Everything. And it's quite fun to watch and imagine what this journey would have been like for her and her sons. And the short film captures this really pivotal moment in Bertha's journey. So just imagine Bertha and her two boys set out at the crack of dawn and they are happily on their way until Bertha realizes they need fuel. And of course, at this time, there are no gas stations. So she has to stop in a town of Vaislock, where she immediately heads to the pharmacist for some legroin. And this is a cleaning fluid that contains petroleum and can keep her motor wagon running. To this day, the still standing pharmacy is known rather playfully as the, quote, First gas station in the world.
1: Oh, I love that. So, uh, Bertha filled up, she was on her way, but this was no easy journey that was ahead of them because as the name motor wagon suggests, she is driving a motorized wagon. <laughs> so, it has two wheels that support the seats and the engine and one in the front. So, kind of imagine kind of riding like a tricycle, but it's a wagon. And Bertha and her two boys are sitting in the open air completely unprotected from the elements. And we also have to remember they're traveling on unpaved
2: roads. And why are we telling you about this trip? You may be thinking, dress listeners. Well, fashion actually played no small role in Bertha's adventures. Bertha, as a woman of means out in public, would more than likely have been fashionably dressed in 1888 attire, which meant, among many articles of dress, she would have been wearing a bustle and a bustled gown, a corset, and, of course, the requisite hat and gloves. To have left the house without wearing these last two items would have been a social faux pas, not to mention the hat was absolutely a necessity in keeping Bertha protected from the sun.
1: Now, we hear what you are saying, Whitney, you know, driving in a bustle? Well, <laughs> 19th century women's fashion is so different from what we wear today that it is easy for us to label these garments as impractical and uncomfortable But these garments were functional because they had to be. And as one of our past dress guest Kate Strasden's research has shown, women were even mountain climbing in crinolines and bustle gowns in the 19th century. So why not drive a car in them as well? You know,
2: bustles weren't always these rigid structures. You know, they they collapsed so, so that you could sit down. In April, Bertha's attire was functional in more ways than one. She reportedly had to use her hairpins repeatedly throughout the journey to unclog valves. And as the story goes, she even used her garter to plug a leaky (laughs) valve. Like I said, enterprising and fashionable. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And needless to say, Bertha and her boys did make it to their destination safely. Her journey did wonders to promote the Benz brand. And her 66-mile trek was basically an informal and kind of impromptu publicity tour. Because wherever she went, everywhere she stopped, people marveled at this new machine. And so, like you said, Cass, in more ways than one, she was really pivotal in getting the whole Benz motor wagon operation rolling, Pun intended there. (laughs) Uh, So it was not long before Benz's competitors also began flooding the market with their own designs.
2: And it might, again, go without saying, while ubiquitous to us today, the motor wagon, like the bicycle, was this incredibly new phenomenon in the 1880s and 90s, and a luxury, which at first was only enjoyed by the wealthiest few, and that was first in Europe, then it came to America. And to illustrate this point, I wanted to read an excerpt from an 1897 New York Times article about the arrival in the U.S. of the, quote, new mechanical wagon with its awful name, automobile. (laughs) And that arrived in Newport, Rhode Island, which was then the playground of America's richest families. The article goes on, quote, "...but the wagons and carriages and cabs that run without horses are to be the vehicles of the future." And continues, "...sooner or later they will displace the fashionable carriage of the present hour, and the horse will cease to be an important factor in the transportation of human beings for pleasure or business." And, oh boy,
1: were they right, because technological developments quickly resulted in the evolution of the automobile. And while it is still very much a novelty in the U.S. in, you know, 1897, by 1908, just a little over a decade later, we see the introduction of the now famous Model T car. So, yes, motor carriages are increasingly being referred to and marketed as the much abbreviated car, right? So this car, manufactured by the American Ford Motor Company in Detroit, really revolutionized transportation by making automobiles affordable to the middle class. And Henry Ford was able to achieve this thanks to the incredible efficiency achieved by his unique and novel assembly line production techniques. And by 1911, Vogue declared, quote, the motor car has ceased to be a luxury and has become a necessity. And, Cass,
2: not just for men. No, no, because women drivers were a viable part of the consumer market, and this is evident in numerous advertisements, articles, manuals, and handbooks from this period that are marketed specifically to women— The quote April just read is actually pulled from a three-page article in Vogue that focuses not on fashion. Of course, there are other articles that do so within the magazine. But this specific article focuses rather on the quote-unquote rational aspects of the car for the magazine's inquiring readership. And this particular article even features an Baker Electric Car, and this is open-air car, was specifically designed for a woman driver because, quote, its extreme grace and ease of operation make it, you know, easier for the woman to use. And if that <laughs> sounds sexist, it's because it totally is. Electric cars, and yes, there were electric cars in the teens, were marketed to women because they were believed to be easier to operate. So they did not require, you know, the excessive hand cranking of the gas-fueled cars and were generally considered to be less labor intensive, marketed as so easy to drive, a woman can do it. (laughs) A 1912 advertisement
1: for the Waverly electric car was one of many that used fashion to directly target women. And as these electric cars were enclosed, the subline reads, quote, Delicate gowns not marred in this roomy electric. And while this particular ad shows a male driver, the ads for Baker Electric Vehicles combined both women drivers with stylistic appeal. And it's really fun to look at some of their ads over this 10-year period because both of the the illustration styles and the clothing styles really kind of mirror some of the ones that we've seen in Pushwar fashion publications from this time period which Cassidy and I have actually written a book about. And these advertisements are completely using fashion to market their their automobile brand, right? Obviously they're making fashion and the driving woman synonymous with each other.
2: Yeah, and these marketing tactics were actually adopted by many of the major car companies, including Ford, who in 1925 produced a car ad in Ladies Home Journal that was really espousing this idea that their car allowed women to, quote, accomplish more daily, yet easily keep base with her usual domestic obligations. And get this, just two years later, on May 26, 1927, the last Model T was put into production. 15 million cars had been sold by the Ford Motor Company up to that point, and that's just one company. So basically, after 30 years, the New York Times predictions of cars replacing horses as the main mode of transportation had really come to fruition. By 1927, the car was a mainstay of modern life, a place it still maintains to this very day. The end.
1: Except for the fat cast that I think you forgot about, one key element of today's fashion
2: history mystery. <laughs> inquiry. <laughs> yes, of course. I just We are so not done, but I really wanted us to get a brief history of the modern car out of the way. And as we've demonstrated, women have been there every step of the way. And while the introduction of enclosed cars really pretty early on allowed the fashionable woman to maintain her wardrobe with little alteration, what of her open-air loving counterparts? How did that initial transition from horse-drawn carriages to cars affect women's fashion? For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day.
2: Just an FYI, the intersection of women's dress and driving cars is no small topic, which is one of the reasons it took me so long to write this episode, because I kept getting drawn into to like <laughs> over <laughs> 150 years or something of, of car driving fashion.
1: I, I think there's even more to say,
2: too. Oh, there's so much more. We will definitely do a part two of this if you'd like it. Just let us know. But I searched for automobile dress, for instance, in ProQuest, which um, is you know our search engine that combines the New York Times, women's words. Daily Vogue, Harper's, et cetera, I received back 60,000 results. So for our intents and purposes today, we have chosen to just focus on this early transitional period at the turn of the 20th century.
1: Yeah, and we already know from past episodes that increasingly active women in the 1890s were already widening their wardrobes to include Functional practical sportswear. For instance, we did an episode on the etiquette and clothing specific to bicycling, which was a very new and exciting leisure activity around the same time. You know, the adoption of bifurcated garments by women was the most notable and controversial adaption of dress to this, you know, then novel sport of bicycling. But traveling in motor wagons, or horseless carriages as they were also called, was an entirely different type of activity. And so while the nature of the motor wagon did not necessitate the adoption of pants by women, motor wagons did similarly expose the passengers to the elements. However, unlike the bike, they did so at increasingly top speeds. And when we say top speeds at this time, we're talking like 30 or 40 miles per hour, right? (laughs) But women still needed protection,
2: Yeah, and one of the very first articles I found on automobile dress was from an article in Harper's Bazaar on August 13th, 1898, and it referenced the latest addition to the growing list of attire required by the increasingly active woman of a certain means, of course. But it reads that the smart and sporty Parisian has not only to think of her golfing gown, her tailor-made walking gown, her bicycle costume, but also, she has now her automobile gown, perhaps the most important of all for a promenade on automobile. French tailors are beginning now to make a specialty of gowns for the automobile. They are generally in gray, dark blue, or green. And just to note, the dark colors were really necessary to camouflage what was to be an expected you know, layer of dirt and dust acquired during your journey. Harper's goes on, the coats are smart with many pockets and large and beautiful buttons. The hat, it goes without saying, is as simple as possible, is generally felt, and is worn with thick veil.
1: Goggles and gloves would have completed this automobile dress that honestly really would not change that much over the ensuing decades in terms of these foundational essentials for open-air driving. You know, we have the hat, the scarf. Goggles, coat, and gloves. And the FIDA Museum in L.A. has a fabulous woman's motoring duster in their collection that dates to around the same time, 1910, 1915. And at first glance, it's deceptively plain. It's tan in color with black trim. But if you inspect it a little further, it's actually made of silk which is amazing. And the museum has dressed it with all of the prerequisite accessories, including a huge hat, as per the fashion of 1910, 1912. Think Titanic here, right? Those big platter brimmed hats. Um, And that hat was secured in place with a giant scarf. So all of these things would have been placed over whatever the fashionable silhouette of the time period was. And in this case, it was a shirtwaist blouse and a skirt. Of course, you know, all of this being worn over it.
2: Images of women motorists from this period confirm the scarf as a standard feature and one that was a matter of both fashion and safety. As Fidham points out on their blog, and of course we'll post a link in our show notes, quote, the scarf would have been tied tightly around the hat and hair. And the 1927 scarf-related accident which killed dancer Isadora Duncan illustrates the worst-case scenario of what could happen when a scarf was not anchored securely while motoring, end quote. And we actually talked about Duncan's horrific death in our When Fashion Kills episode from 2018. And may she rest in peace, because that was a terrible way to go. Yes.
1: And at stakes in women's motoring dress was more than just her safety. With women motorists taking to the streets in increasing numbers in the early years of the new century, what to wear became
2: a prime topic of discussion, and not necessarily for the reasons that we might think. Yeah, in 1903, a Madam Hunt was quoted in a New York Times article after having given a speech at the Convention of the National Milliners Association, at which she demanded... No more leather caps with long visors, no goggles, large veils, or box-like coats for the woman automobilist. She's lamenting. She's not happy. She says, <laughs> for the protection of women herself, we must break away from the styles of automobiling costumes which are prevailing now. A woman must have such headgear and clothing as will permit her to attend an afternoon reception immediately on alighting from the automobile if she sees fit. She concludes that while the current style for automobile dress was fine for, you know, riding in the country, they were entirely improper for a lady moving about in the city.
1: Madam Hunt's speech speaks to all these societal anxieties surrounding more than just clothing. You know, as we have discussed repeatedly on the show, a woman's (laughs) dressed or undressed body was really the site of, you know, gendered societal tensions and debates about That of a motoring woman, what she should wear, was no exception. And and if driving wasn't necessarily a gendered activity, the expectations of the driver and the driver's proper attire definitely were. And as Madame Hunt's concerns attest, fashionable attire was a direct extension of the wearer's gender and everything that gendering implied— especially in terms of the maintenance of modesty and respectability in the public sphere. So, you know, the increase of cars really pushed women into these urban spaces in a new way, a newly mobile way that some people also
2: found quite threatening. Yeah, and there's a great article in the Journal of American History from 2014 by historian Dr. Emily Remis about the, quote-unquote, Lady Tipler. Have you ever heard of this, April? (laughs) Lady Tipler and Tipling. Um, And she's writing about these women in Fond de siècle, Chicago. And this was, she says of these women, they were, quote, a woman of good family and comfortable circumstances who publicly quaffed spirits. Um, This troubling new metropolitan figure evoked a myriad of evils, from the decay of home life to the spread of drunken hedonism apparently april you're in my copious happy hour sessions would not have been acceptable
1: now let's just say Cass and i have definitely killed some bottles of champagne before. <laughs> <laughs> and dr remus goes on to write in her article that this illuminates a crucial moment in the making of consumer society, when urban public spaces and public culture accommodated the new female pleasure seeker. And this essay suggests that Chicago ladies gained new access to the public realm as patrons of refined and feminized commercial spaces. Yet, the conflict over their conspicuous tippling, or drinking, alcohol, that is what that means, (laughs) um, you know, concerned more than, than spatial boundaries it really pivoted on the right of women to pursue individual pleasure in public, you know, right most brazenly expressed by drinking. And that could also, we could argue, apply to driving. So more on that right after a brief sponsor break.
2: Welcome back. Georgine Clarson addresses this very topic of women, consumption, culture, and the public sphere in her fabulous book, Eat My Dust, Early Women Motorists, which brings to light this little explored history of women's relationships to cars. And dress played no small part in this equation. She writes, through their actions, words, and appearances, motoring women articulated a modern desire to fashion new versions of sexual difference. But she writes, at issue was how to acquire an admirably modern, capable, and adventurous look without inviting social ridicule. It was a fine balance for the motoring woman to achieve, for she had to negotiate a path between respectability, practicality, and being fashionable in a variety of social situations without veering toward either tasteless ostentation or overly utilitarian clothing that would be considered unfeminine on a woman of privilege. Lots to think about.
1: hmm While driving, a woman was first and foremost expected to maintain societal gender standards of dress and beauty. But did she? Yes. No, you know, take women's motor masks as a prime example. (laughs) Yes, motor masks were offered as alternatives to the precarious goggles and scarf combination. And I'm not going to lie to you guys, they are quite amusing to look at today. Some of them resemble those face mask sheets that are on the beauty market today. I love them. I have a whole bunch. I always have a stash of them in the bathroom. But these masks, these motoring masks, they mask any of the wearer's distinguishable features. But you, you know, they ostensibly serve a very practical purpose, right?
2: Yes, and because they kind of limited the public gaze and they masked women's features, they were repeatedly disparaged in the popular press for their unsightly appearance. One article in the New York Tribune for 1909, for instance, was written by, I'm assuming, a man who lamented the obfuscation of the wearer's face. He says, It's been said that the modern woman will sacrifice Anything that she may go a motoring. The statement would seem a wide one, but when one sees beauty become a veritable beauté de diable, so devil's beauty, in the manner here illustrated, it's difficult not to believe it. Obviously, these particular protectors against the dust are more effective than the ordinary goggles are. And of course, they keep the face clean and they guard it from the wind. For all that, it is difficult to believe that many women will doff the old glasses and their motor veil in favor of them. So, at the end of the day, I think that this really, in more ways than one, underscores societal anxieties surrounding newly mobile modern women. And there's a lot to unpack
1: there, you know, especially because the author acknowledges that the masks are practical, but it That apparently does not matter if it sacrifices her beauty and it interferes with a presumably male gaze of the author. Another example of women negotiating fashion and motoring comes in the form of the British race car driver, Christabel Ellis, who Clarson notes, quote, raced a stripped-down Errol Johnston in the first women's event at the Brooklyn's Racing Circuit in Surrey in 1908. She had little choice but to wear a long skirt, though the car's open body presented major difficulties keeping it in place, end quote. So, despite her male counterparts wearing practical clothing, i.e. pants, Ellis had to tie her hazardous skirt around her legs to keep it from flying about, just like some of the early
2: aviatrixes as well. Yeah, Exactly. Aware of these pressures, proper dress was a constant topic of conversation, and not just fashion magazines, but motoring handbooks marketed specifically to women drivers. So, for instance, Dorothy Levitt dedicated an entire chapter in her 1909 book, The Woman in the Car, to, quote, the all-important question of dress. Appearance was really tantamount for the pioneering professional British race car driver who always appeared in public, impeccably dressed. There's wonderful images of her. Um, You know, despite stressing the importance of neatness in her text. However, comfort was its necessary companion always. So a tailor-made suit with a shirt blouse of linen or silk, for instance, is quote, without doubt, the most comfortable. And she continues, the wearer has the advantage of at the end of the day, days run, still appearing trim and neat. So, you know, kind of that constant going back and forth between comfort and appearance, fashionability.
1: An experienced race car driver, Levitt provides her readers with loads of advice about what to wear. Her tips and tricks include how to tie your scarf to secure the hat in place and never leaving home without your long-sleeved overalls, um, which were essentially kind of like an artist's mock. She says, quote, Remember, it is better to get grease spots on your washable overall than on your coat or other clothes. And in answer to part of listener Whitney's question about gloves, Those were an absolute necessity for Levitt, who suggests that everything from the correct type of gloves to wear in winter to work gloves that will protect your hands
2: while you're actually doing work on the car. So these are three prime examples of the ways in which modern women negotiated societal expectations and fashion with their newfound autonomy and mobility. Clarson writes about how, quote, automobile technology emerged in industrialized societies just at the moment when a variety of formerly silenced groups were vigorously proclaiming their right to full citizen status, entitled to an equal place in public life. Consumption of mass produced goods, including the car, were ways in which women participated in the public sphere in an increasingly liberated way. And consumption and public mobility was not reserved to the right upper class. Gleason also writes, quote, for African-Americans as well as other groups whose access to public space was limited, automobile consumption was much more than an economic activity. It was incorporated into their aspirations for social and public change for active modern citizenship. One
1: example of women's modern mobility and also an example of just an incredible success story is that of Sarah Breedlove. And for our listeners who might not know the woman by the name of Sarah Breedlove, you might recognize her by her married name, Madam C.J. Walker, because C.J. are the initials or were the initials of her third husband, Charles Joseph. Madam C.J. Walker uh, was a self made American millionaire who made her fortune off a line of cosmetics and hair care products for black women and there are two incredibly fabulous images of her at the height of fashionability in both her electric car and also her Ford Model T.
2: Oh yeah, and honestly, we need to dedicate an entire episode to her as well because her story is pretty incredible. I really think Clarkson hit it on the head when she connects the modern car to the modern woman and by extension, modern fashion. It's no coincidence that modern fashion emerged at this same time. And while it's perhaps not a direct result of the car, we've actually done a whole episode on all of the disparate factors that went into, you know, making modern fashion at this time. You know, it's really no coincidence that modern fashion developed in tandem with the modern woman who was participating in modern urban spaces and enjoying modern technologies in new ways. Car riding and driving required women to think consciously about the clothing required for this new activity, and it caused them to negotiate their much-needed comfort with societal standards of the day that require the performance of gender of which, as we know, dress was inextricably linked.
1: Always, always, always. And, you know, the fact that women's fashion progressed towards modernity during the 19-teens with this clothing that increasingly promoted ease of movement and comfort speaks directly to the changes in the women's lives as they, you know, became increasingly public actors. So this was especially true during World War One, when millions of women entered the workforce and in, in what were, prior, you know, exclusively male dominated fields and jobs, including ambulance and taxi drivers and also mechanics.
2: So Whitney, we hope that answers your question about the myriad of ways that the modern car influenced and interacted with women's dress at the dawn of the 20th century. We will leave you all with a quote from Clarsen's wonderful book. In their action and words, every woman motorist claimed a degree of worldliness as technological actors, challenging notions of female technological ineptitude and automotive naivete. Together, these small-scale stories of particular women in specific places tells a much larger story of how automobiles were incorporated into 20th century women's aspirations for major social change, for independence, mobility, meaningful work, and pleasurable lives. The same, my friends, can be said of their dress.
1: And on that note, I think that does it for us today. May you consider the legacy of the automobile dress in your wardrobe next time you get dressed to drive. Dress listeners, we might be on hiatus right now from launching brand new content, but that does not mean dressed has gone dark. We are working away on content for our next season and our upcoming classes, and if you would like to reach out to us, we're still here. You can reach us via email at hello at dresshistory.com, and dresshistory.com is of course our website where you can sign up for our newsletter or our upcoming classes and tours. We recently announced the launch of Dress the School of Fashion, which is our platform for our online classes, which will make their debut in January with Cass's What Women Wore to the Revolution. A 100 plus years of transformative fashion
2: and our website is also where you are going to find our expanded offerings of in-person trips and tours starting with april's soon-to-be bi-weekly fashion history friday nights at the metropolitan museum of art in new york city and if you would like more details about april's tours or my class you can head on over and find all the deets at dressedhistory.com And if you want to say hello, you can also, of course, always DM us on Instagram at Dressed underscore podcast, which is where you will find visuals accompanying each week's episodes.
1: Are those holiday gift cards burning a hole in your pocket? Well, you might consider heading over to the Dress Bookshelf, where we have more than 120 of our favorite fashion history titles and books featured on the show arranged there just for you. Head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash dressed. And each of your purchases from the Dress bookshelf go through an independent bookseller. You can also find a link to our bookshelf in our show notes.
2: And did you know you can listen to Dressed ad-free for just $3 a month? You can use the link in our show notes or the button in our Instagram link tree to subscribe to the exclusive content of Dressed, which is the ad-free version. Each episode will show up in your feed just like normal, but without the ads. Thank you, as always, Dress listeners, for your continued support. And may you consider your own fashion history, past, present, and future, next time you get Dressed. Season 7 of Dress coming your way late January 2024. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.